everybody, and welcome back to Traffic Jam. It's Isabel, and I'm here with Georgia. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode, where we are going to explore risks that are pertinent to college-age students. Even though we are both a few years out of college ourselves, we are definitely still young enough to talk about this now before we get too old. Yes, we had to do this episode before we aged out of it. We say as we are, you know, in our mid-20s. We're getting up there, so we have to talk about it now. But speaking of college age, this is a reminder that MISCO-U, our college chapter program, is always looking to expand, and we want to see it reach as many colleges as possible. So if you're interested in that or know somebody in college who may be interested, please write into our Instagram page, and we personally will help you get it started. On this show, we've talked about different vulnerabilities that can lead to victimization or exploitation um, regarding human trafficking. And we have said over and over that anybody can be a victim of human trafficking. And we have even mentioned once or twice that sometimes people are exploited without they themselves even realizing they are a victim due to lack of general knowledge about this issue. And so today we want to actually take time and break down how college-age students can fall victim to exploitation or human trafficking. Um, We're also going to expand this to um, sexual violence, dating violence as well. There are specific circumstances that college-aged people experience that that can lead them to be more vulnerable to exploitation, situations that are unique to um, the period in life that they are about to go into. Uh, And DHS, or Department of Homeland Security, recognizes uh, some of these. And so we are essentially going to walk through the points that DHS has brought up and talk about them, how they relate, you know, based on our experience in college or people that we know. Now, before we get too far into talking about uh, the ways that college-age students are vulnerable to human trafficking, I just want to give a little bit of a justification for the topic uh, and talk about why this is so important. So the first thing that is important to note is that uh, sexual violence, sexual assault is extremely underreported. So any statistics that you look at that talk about, you know, the number of uh, college age students that have been assaulted are probably you know, the, the real number is probably a lot higher. So just in terms of some statistics that are out there, um, an estimated 20 to 25% of undergraduate women are victim survivors of sexual violence. But, and the shocking part is, 90% or more do not uh, report the violence. And so this is the scope that we're looking at to say this issue is extremely relevant uh, to college-age students. Now, there are not statistics that specifically talk about human trafficking. Those numbers are not available. I feel like, Georgia, correct me if I'm wrong, this is something that is a little bit more recently been talked about um, in the past couple of years. People are trying to collect data on it um, and something that's not very readily available. I believe you're right with that. So with that, again, and this is just undergraduate women Um, and so you know if we include men in the mix as well and the fact that 90% don't even report 
you know, this number is relevant uh, to most everybody um, on college campuses. So with that, we're going to talk about the specific ways in which um, college age students can become more vulnerable. So for a lot of college age students, this is their first time living away from their home and their parents or their guardians. They are also meeting and living with new people. And obviously with this newfound freedom, college students are likely to live and learn from their mistakes. In my case, I went to college out of my home state, away from where I grew up, and I went from the stereotypical rural small town to a college in a city, which was a complete 180. I was lucky enough to go into college as a student athlete, so I was basically assigned housing with my teammates who I spent a lot of time with. Yes, they initially were strangers, but I spent so much time with them that I was going to become familiar and friends with them whether I really liked it or not, it wasn't my choice because I was a student athlete. I didn't play uh, sports in college or, I mean, at all, really. Um, did the female athletes, like, mingle a lot with then, like, the male athletes? Were you also, like, kind of in constant space with them as well? Or was it, like, very separate? It was, like, constant space. Like, just all athletes in general kind of hung out around each other, whether you were in the gym, in the trainer's offices, getting healed from injuries, or even a lot just had classes together. You were walking to practices together. You were walking around together. Everybody had their athletics, t-shirts, backpacks, water bottles. I'm sure anybody that went to a school with athletes can picture it. Everybody just kind of traveled in herds, and they did intermingle amongst all the different teams. So I actually commuted uh, to, to school. So I lived at home during my undergraduate um, and went like back and forth, drove like 45 minutes um, each way. So I didn't really have the same like, you know, newfound independence compared to, you know, somebody who's like moving away, going out of state to school. Um, but I will say I was a part of, uh, my school's uh, speech team, a uh, competitive speech team. And so, I mean, I was, you know, similar, to, I know, you know, we call speech a sport, uh, just like we call <laughs> psychology a science. <laughs> but um, we would travel every single weekend. We were constantly, you know, the team together. We had our own entire floor of a building uh, for our space, our practice space. Um, but, you know, we're traveling every single weekend uh, with each other, you know, in close proximity in terms of, you know, we're getting Airbnb, staying in hotels, all the things. And I mean, I was a part of such a great team. Um, and, you know, everyone was very close, respectful to one another. But there were cases um, at other speech teams that came out where um, sexual abuse was taking place um coaches towards the students because i mean we're all again like i said like in such close quarters with each other building these like trusted connections uh if you've ever been to a college speech tournament people are so vulnerable because the speeches that they give um 
portray like just very personal messages. It's really hard to explain. Even if you just YouTube like a college um, duo interpretation, you know, competition speech, you will be blown away. And so it this this type of space really kind of led to opportunity uh, for sexual abuse to take place. Wow, that's really interesting. I know. So I know you mentioned, you know, being on like a sports team and I had asked about, you know, do the men and women like intermingle a lot? So I don't know if there's the same, you know, if you travel in the same way that like I mentioned with the speech team. Um, But, you know, I could imagine that, you know, depending on like the sports team, there is room for that to still occur. I mean, there was no cases of that when I was in school and I had never heard of other colleges in our conference of that occurring but we did travel when we were in season we stayed in hotels we were on buses we were on planes so I'm sure just for any college athlete or college speech team person I don't know what the the correct term is for that (laughs) but I'm sure that opportunity is just as present Mm -hmm. but Thank exactly. God nobody I know personally experienced that. Mm-hmm. And so I think the important thing of bringing this up is that, I mean, everybody's college experience is going to look a little bit different, whether, you know, you're commuting versus moving away, you know, versus the type of club or team that you're a part of. Again, you know, and I think it's very empowering to have that like awareness and that knowledge because that can then help somebody distance themselves or recognize early signs of a potentially dangerous situation. Right. So I have to ask, since you were a commuter, did you have to go to any like freshman orientation programs at your school? Yes. Well, so we had like, well, we called it a welcome week and it was like, I think two or three days. We went to the zoo um, as a part of it. (laughs) I'm kind of jealous of that one. I know, I know. I mean, it's kind of fun. Uh, we did, but one of the things, so there were several different like lectures um, that we would sit in. I don't call them lectures, but like speakers that we would go and listen yeah. to. Uh, but in one of the things though that we had to sit in on was uh, listening to this woman speak on um, the potential, you know, risks that students can face in terms of sexual violence. Uh, she spoke mostly about you know consent and the importance of you know asking for consent and demonstrating what that looks like again this was a few years ago so I don't really remember the exact content that she spoke on but I do remember leaving that thinking oh that was really informative she did Mm -hmm. a really good job you know breaking down the steps at I'll say this then I'll explain why I use this word this wording age appropriate level uh in terms of like talking to adults okay and the reason why I use age appropriate is because and I'm sure you had to experience this if you're on a sports team at our college at least you are required you know your team to do a a training uh, a, a sexual violence prevention training it was the biggest joke because we had to essentially watch a, it was we watched a video and there was like a instructor from the office there, and then 
she would ask us a few, you know, discussion questions. And this was a requirement because we traveled. Okay. Uh, and so the whole video was a cartoon demonstrating consent in reference to asking somebody to go on a bike ride with you. And it was the guys could not keep a straight face. I think our coach was so embarrassed because the guys were joking about it the whole entire time. The girls, we were able to like maintain some composure. Right. But it, I mean, and I think the instructor was so irritated. But they were treating the topic of consent as a joke, to, using reference right. to, oh, do you want to go on a bike ride with me? And not getting upset if somebody doesn't want to go on a bike ride, you know, with you. Or if they do, that's great. You can enjoy that time. And it was, I mean, it was bizarre. Like nobody could take it seriously. And so I think that, and I feel like there is, you know, our training's helpful versus not. And I think that they can be at least somewhat beneficial, but not something like that. No, I feel like that's, like you said, it's making a joke of it. Like that's something that I would picture you showing to an elementary school aged or middle school aged, maybe even that might even be pushing it. But that's where that video kind of belongs in my head, not to college aged mm-hmm. students. Um, what I remember from my like freshman orientation, I think it was for general students. And like you said, it was years ago because we're so old. <laughs> but I remember we were sitting in um, like the top floor of our student center, which is where they did a lot of like gatherings and presentations, especially for the freshmen. And I don't know if this was an every year thing or whatever, but they actually acted out a party scene to like, you know, kids, they're hanging out, they're drinking, they're listening to music and they kind of acted out without acting out sexual assault happening. And I don't know if it was to scare everybody, but it was kind of like overwhelming and kind of shocking to sit there and be like, did they just act out without fully acting out sexual assault? Are they scaring us? What's the purpose of this? Like, it was like the complete opposite of what you had experienced where it was a joke. It was like, no, you can get sexually assaulted if you're out partying and drinking. And so be careful, know what to do. I didn't know how to take it. I was like, okay, good to know. I don't know. How do you, you know take the that? exact video series that you're talking? I don't know why I've seen so many of these trainings, but I had to, for some reason, watch that one as well. No, the students acted it out. Oh, it wasn't. The, okay. It was not a video. It was like, like students who had, I don't know, like upperclassmen oh, who like volunteered oh. to scare the freshmen basically. Okay. See, I've seen a video where like their actors acting out different scenes of how, you know, something might start and what to be aware of and how to help your, what to look out for, like how to help your friends. You see happening to them and they, but what you had to watch. Oh (laughs) my goodness. (laughs) I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, I don't know if, like, it's still a thing or if maybe somebody realized maybe that's not the best approach because I don't think really there was much to take away from it besides, okay, yes, this is very real. It can happen, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I felt like it was a scare tactic. Like, yeah. don't drink underage because this can happen to you. Well, you still remember it to this day, it sounds like. 
Yeah, I need to ask somebody if that was like a, a bad dream or if they remember it too, but I'll have to find out if I'm crazy or if that really happened because it feels like a pipe dream. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, you know what I just thought about too? I should have mentioned this when I was talking about the statistics on how, you know, 20 to 25% of women um, are assaulted. There is a documentary called The Hunting Ground, and it is on uh, sexual violence on college campuses and the way that colleges are set up and the way that Title IX is set up really protects colleges um, from having to report sexual violence and the way so then students who have reported um, don't actually get any help. Absolutely fascinating. So I highly, highly recommend um, that documentary to everybody just to further solidify um, the scope of this issue. And they break down statistics of uh, sexual violence that's been reported at college campuses. Um, So yeah, definitely go watch it. Wow. If you watch the documentary, you'll get a lot of examples um, and like stories of students who are kind of going through this process um, and just how awful it is. And a little bit later, you know, we'll talk a little bit more into detail on what that looks like. Um, but we're going to keep going with the different ways that students are vulnerable. So that first one that we mentioned, obviously, living away from home or having this increased, um, this first time of having this increased uh, independence. Um, and navigating the world, you know, people, you know, students are trying to figure out who, you know, their college friends are going to be, and there's pressures, you know, to drink, do drugs, um, and, you know, you're cohabitating with all of these other, you know, uh, peers, and so, again, that is one way that students are vulnerable. Uh, The second way um, is economic instability and dependence. The one stereotype that basically holds true for most college kids is that they are broke and traffickers or predators can exploit a student's monetary needs by offering money or even false promises of jobs. So we talked about sugar relationships in episodes eight and nine of this podcast. Um, So if anybody is looking for a deeper dive into that topic, um, check it out there. Uh, So, but, you know, without repeating too much of what we've already covered in those episodes, we've learned that, you know, sugar dating has become uh, a trending uh, way in which, you know, good looking young college uh, students get financial support while they're in school. Uh, They utilize their youth um, and their looks to attract older women and men to then pay them for their companionship or sexual favors. And... The issue here, you know, it sounds sounds great, right? You show up to dinner and you get paid for it. Uh, but the issue is when you have that other person who is paying your bills, paying your tuition, uh, and you become dependent on having that uh, as a revenue stream, they can then manipulate that to ask for things that somebody might not be comfortable, um, like sexual acts. And so a lot of times people will go into sugar relationships saying, you know, well, I'm not going to have sex with them. Uh, It's just going to be companionship. But the reality ends up happening uh, that they get manipulated into that situation. And, you know, that 
financial need is then looming over them or they feel that they owe their, you know, like sugar daddy or sugar mama um, those requests because they paid for so much for them and they don't want to lose that. Basically, it's all fun and games to joke about these relationships and say, well, I'm going to hop on seeking arrangement and I and I personally know people who have, but these relationships are more risky than eating ramen noodles for four years straight. I know that's a scary thought, but it's more risky to be in a sugar relationship. And also another common thing we kind of mentioned was that there are false promises of jobs and college students may reply to a modeling or acting job they find on the internet just to find out that it's another lie and it's a setup and they become exploited through that route. Don't we know somebody who, not know somebody, weren't we told a story one time of somebody who ha- that happened to her daughter at like a public yeah. rest stop? Yeah, at a, at a, uh, when they were traveling, a rest stop. Yeah. They were approached, uh, the daughter about a modeling job. Now the mom works in the anti-trafficking space. Um, and so, you know, the daughter recognized this as being suspicious, but as a young girl to have somebody come up to you is saying, you know, you should be a model. Like, here's my number. I mean, that is, it's very flattering. Um, and especially in a day and age where the media that we're surrounded by puts so much priority on how you should look. Um, it's just a very reassuring thing to hear. And so it's a very, you know, tempting thing to then easily, you know, fall into a scam. Especially if you're stressed about your biochemistry quiz that's coming up next Thursday, just standing around and having your picture taken sounds a lot more glamorous and way less stressful than biochemistry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And again, too, I mean, on the topic of, you know, economic instability, pursuing scholarships, uh, and there are several different ways to go about this and taking the time to research that can be very beneficial. I know, obviously, you know, it's hard to get your entire college covered. That's not you know, the most likely, but every, you know, thousand, few thousand dollars helps. Like I know, I mean, for me, one, I was saving up all throughout high school, knowing I wanted to go to college, but two, a lot of jobs have scholarship programs and they don't always announce it a whole ton. I found, uh, including like retail jobs. Um, if you work at like a grocery store or like a fast food chain, a lot of them have a scholarship program that you can apply for every single year. Um, so that's one way to get a few thousand dollars. I even, I mean, you find these in random places. The orthodontist that I went to in high school where I got my braces from, they had a scholarship program. Um, you, I wrote an essay about how much, how great my braces were. And, and I was. <laughs> wow. That's yeah, impressive. Like, I know, you know, and so, There are just so many, there are a lot of different ways. And I will say applying for scholarships, it's almost a part-time, full-time job in and of itself. Um, But there are a lot of options out there. And I will say too, I know one girl who, if you go to a school 
or you're looking, you're strongly considering a school and they don't really give you a whole ton of scholarships. If you go back to them and say, hey, I really want to go here, but like, I need more scholarship. They somehow find ways to sneak in more money. So, you know, there was one girl, um, she was looking into going, uh, she was going into a certain college she really wanted, but it was so expensive compared to, you know, her second school. And she kept going, she went back to them twice saying like, I really want to go here the other schools are giving me this much in scholarships. Like I will. And she was very serious. I'm, I can't go here with this price. And they came back. Wow. And they lowered her tuition. That's so, amazing. Again, yeah. I mean, those things again, aren't guaranteed. It's not guaranteed. You're going to win all these scholarships, but there are things, you know, before you enter into college uh, that you can prepare for that. I feel like not a lot of people know. Um, you know, going to a private school versus a state school, you know, doing two years of community college first and then transferring to a, like, there are so many different ways uh, right. to save money. But when you're 18, unfortunately, that's not what you're thinking about. You want to go to the school that's big and fun and maybe super far away from home, or maybe you just want to stay home. And that's what you do. Um, any student athletes out there, you're going to want to use your sport to help you get into college. And not a lot of student athletes have full scholarships. I didn't have a full scholarship athletically. I had really good grades, so I had academic and athletic money. And that still didn't cover my full tuition as most people who I went to school with. So student athletes still have to keep their grades up because coaches look for that. Schools look for that. And even when you're in school and say, you know, I'll get through the first year or first two years, but I need more money to stay the third year and the fourth year. Sometimes if you have good grades, you could go back to your school and have them basically review your academics and say, can you up my academic scholarship given my performance in school? Like I'm doing better now than I was projected to in my senior year of high school. Like maybe you were just kind of lazy or you just excelled when you got to college. They might give you more money to stay at that school. So that's another thing that people can keep in mind. Definitely. I feel like there's so many little little tricks that, you know, I became aware of either like while I was there or like it was like just too late. Yeah. Um, you know, with like my younger sisters then going through. So it's like, there are definitely things to help uh, with that process just in terms of finances. Because I know, I mean, when you're a college student, that has got to be one of the biggest stressors for most, most students. Right. All right. The third one, the common use of alcohol or substance abuse on college campuses. Um, you know, another thing that we know is that, you know, the stereotype is that college students like to party. Um, whether, you know, they first tried alcohol when they were in high school, you know, like college is the place where a lot of underage drinking occurs. Um, and the part of this is kind of looped into that, you know, newfound freedom, uh, tr- trying different things, who is influencing you. Do you remember I know you were a commuter but was your campus labeled as like a wet campus or a dry campus have you heard those terms 
I've never heard those terms, but I'm assuming that a wet campus is where a lot of like a party school and a dry campus is a not party school. Good, good guess, but no. So my campus was only a city block. That's how big it was. It was very tiny. And the upper part of campus, because it was kind of on a hill, it was a slight incline. The upper part of campus was where the freshman dorms were. And that was considered the dry part of campus. There was no alcohol allowed. If it was found in your room because you were underage, you would get written up and have to go through some type of like course or training at the school. But the lower part of campus, which, which is where all of the upperclassmen reside, it was considered a wet part of campus because if you were 21 and over and everybody that lived in your apartment was 21 and over, you were allowed to have alcohol on campus and um like the housing house the resident my god what the hell were they called the resident RA. ra's yeah what was that what does the a stand for what? assistant advisor resident assistant I, somebody RAs. comment but, us in our instagram what it's called <laughs> <laughs> but the ra's couldn't like reprimand you because you were of age legally to be drinking but if you had four people living in your apartment and three were 21 and the fourth one was 20, you could not have a drop of alcohol in there. And even if you had people over, if there was alcohol out and people were drinking, even if it was just the 21 year olds drinking, if there was an underclassman in there, people were getting in trouble. So my campus was like mixed where if you walk down the hill you could, there were people who legally could have alcohol. But if you're up the hill, you couldn't. So we were a smaller campus probably than yours. But there was like the freshman, freshman girls dorm. That was the separate building. The freshman guys dorm. Um, but then like, you know, if you were in the honors program, that was a separate dorm. And so for the most part, in terms of living arrangements, like your first year students had their own space. But mm -hmm. after that, um, everybody's kind of together. The way it worked was depending on your credits, um, that determined when you could choose your housing. So, right. you know, a senior who has more credits is going to get to choose their housing, you know, before like a junior. That's how ours was too. Yes. So, you know, it kind of plays out. But it wasn't perfect, especially, you know, you could have 20-year-olds, you know, rooming with 21, 22-year-olds. Uh, we were not, I will say, though, a party school. I remember one time somebody was, like, trying to go around, like, asking about, like, okay, so, like, where are the parties? Like, well, what is there to do? And, like, people, like, laughed at them. They were, like, <laughs> if that's what you were looking for, like, you came to the wrong school. So there wasn't, like, a whole ton of that they were very strict on their drinking rules. Like mm -hmm. If they were broken, I mean, you'd get written up and even like suspended. Um, and depending on how many times they had to talk to you, expelled. Like they were very okay. serious about the drinking rules. And part of it too was like the town that the school was in had very strict, uh, just like drinking laws in terms of like when it can be served and all of that. Oh, wow. But there were a lot of bars in the area. So it wasn't a party school. There were a lot of bars that people would hang out and like the downtown area was mm -hmm. always, you know, there was always something going on. Right. But again, like, I mean, they were very strict about who they put into bars at certain times. So if you're, you know, 20, you can't go out with your friends at eight, nine o'clock. Uh, oh. 
to, you know, like a bar. So, but in terms of like the living arrangements, for some reason, I feel like you were allowed to have alcohol in your fridge, even if somebody under 21 was living in that room. But I I can't quite remember what there was on that. But like overall, like I know if you were, I know if you were 21, you could have alcohol in your fridge. Um, I can't remember though what the rule was if somebody was rooming with you who was under 21. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, they were, I know they were pretty strict. Yeah. That's, it kind of sounds we like we had similar mm-hmm. college campuses. Like there were no like fraternities or anything on my college campus. It was just apartments. So people would drink in their apartments and then go to local bars. Like you said. No, I was gonna say, well, that's the other thing too, is that like, frater- like campuses that have fraternities on them are, you know, at their own risk of, you know, the sexual violence and assault that's going to occur. It is absurd and uh, it's frustrating. Like that the whole, like the fraternity culture. Um, and I think they talk about it in the documentary, Hunting Ground, uh, how dangerous that culture is uh, for students and the type of like behavior that's allowed. And a lot of times you'll see schools are not going to do anything about it. Because that, the alumni uh, who are who are a part of the fraternities are a huge part of their donor base. And so there's so much money that comes in for schools that have those fraternities set up that it's, you know, they're going to let it keep, keep existing. Right. Uh, even though, I mean, it's putting especially their freshman, sophomore, uh, students female students especially at greater risk if they you know were to go to the frat parties and right yeah that's a really good point with that money thing like I I know a couple people that did the sorority rush when they went to school and just the amount of money that I know some of my friends have just spent rushing sororities and buying all of the outfits and doing all the things that they had to do to get in is crazy in itself. And then they are expected to mingle with certain fraternities and just engage in that culture in general, or they'll be like rejected or outcast. And if they don't fit that certain mold, they can't get in or they can't stay in their sorority or fraternity, which is really interesting because it like, it makes you conform to that lifestyle Mm -hmm. in a way which I guess you could say that like, people are voluntarily doing it and they know what they're getting into. But I feel like there's a lot that goes on underneath the surface that people don't realize when they're going to those big schools. And again, my school didn't have that. I wasn't part of the sorority fraternity culture, but I feel like everybody's just heard stories from their friends that have gone to those types of schools. Right, I mean, and the things that will happen at those parties, like I remember hearing one story of a girl you know, she just went to the bathroom and a guy followed her into the he, drunk, followed her into the bathroom and assaulted her on the bathroom floor of a frat party. So they're inviting all of these, you know, young, uh, new uh, female students to these parties. And then, you know, these girls end up, you know, getting assaulted uh, some of the times. Uh, and so it's just, it feels like it's such an un, I feel like they try to make it sound like you know, they regulate it, but it's such an 
unregulated space almost, I guess you could say. And so, and again, brings in all the money. So there is incentive to, you know, allow the fraternities to continue to exist. Right. Because you don't want to lose those big donors. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Oh, going back, like we kind of talked about how sometimes, or you had mentioned that sometimes when students get onto a college campus, they probably maybe have never drank alcohol in their life. So they might be trying alcohol for the first time, or they're drinking so much more often on a party scene, or they're drinking just in larger quantities than they ever have. So this in itself just leaves people vulnerable, not only to the impacts that alcohol has on the body and the mind, but that social aspect of just being around all of these new people and most likely strangers, especially if you're a freshman or a transfer student, a lot of people are going out and drinking, getting drunk, and just leaving themselves vulnerable to people they don't even know, which I feel is just a big risk in itself. Mm-hmm. Especially because you don't know, you know, especially if you, you know, it's your first time drinking, you don't know how alcohol is going to specifically affect you. Um, and again, none of this is to say that you know, if you do it, you know, drinking college and something bad happens to you, it's not your fault because you were drinking. Definitely not. Um, But it's so important to be aware of. And I feel like people don't like to talk about because they want to be able to continue drinking the negative effect that it can have. um, Just towards safety. Just towards safety. Like, like you said, it is never a victim's fault it's never their intention to get assaulted but sometimes it happens when people become vulnerable we know predators criminals traffickers they approach vulnerable targets that they feel they can exploit and abuse and assault so when you leave yourself vulnerable without any protection whether that's like your buddy you're gonna get drunk and they're gonna stay sober and you know, man the ship. If you don't have some type of mechanism in place, you're, you can be out to the wolves. So, I mean, obviously we're going to say, you know, don't drink underage, especially. Um, but we also are, we're not stupid and we know that it happens uh, a lot. Uh, and so, you know, we just always say, you know, do the best to be aware of your of your surroundings, um, your situation to try, you know, do the best that you can to keep yourself safe. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. It's it's legally good good to say. Um doesn't put us in a promotion or a, a denial spot. Yeah, we're, we're not stupid. <laughs> and now alcohol is not the only thing um on college campuses. You know, we also have to mention drugs and how people may be exposed to or trying drugs for the first time in their life which can also, you know, be a weak point for traffickers, um, something they can use to exploit um, if they're you know, at the right party. And we definitely don't want to get shamed for saying we're putting drugs and alcohol on the same scale and chart, but for today's discussion purposes, that's what we're going to do. Alcohol and drugs are mind-altering, inhibitions-altering substances that can lead people to lack of motor controls and cognitive abilities, just lack of 
awareness overall. There, I said it. I know we're supposed to say alcohol is way better than drugs because, you know, it's legal and not all drugs are legal. But for this purpose of this discussion, we're putting them in the same category based on what they do to your body and mind. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Well, remember when we did that episode, though, on the devices to keep yourself safe? Yes. Like that differentiate over your... I was just thinking about that when we were talking about this. We did one of, like, our... I think our first episode. I think it was. I think it was. We did, like, different devices to, like, keep yourself safe while you're out and about. You know, a scrunchie to cover your drink and all kinds of stuff. (laughs) Yeah, so check out the date rape devices category on Google and see what you find. Maybe you'll find a nice scrunchie to cover your drink. I think that one was called a nightcap. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. All about prevention and deterrence and just being aware in general. No matter if you're in college, if you're out of college, it's very good just to be aware of what's going on around you. And what could happen. So if you go into something, a new situation, and, you know, you're unaware of the, you know, again, we don't want everybody to walk around the world being terrified. But if you are just aware of things that can happen, um, you will just be at increased alert. Um, Pay attention to your surroundings more. Um, Again, and anything that you can do to keep yourself safe, great. Um, Just to hope, you know, you want to reduce the risk of, uh, you know, these, you know, assaults happening. And one, one way to help is just to increase knowledge on the topic and talk about it um, so people are aware. Right. And if you are afraid to be somewhere, tell somebody you're afraid and bring a buddy. Don't go somewhere alone if you are uncomfortable. This is turning into a whole thing about awareness and safety, but we do want everybody to have the confidence to go out in public We want them to be aware of themselves and we want them to feel secure in themselves because that in itself will can possibly deter a predator. Now, the last one we want to talk about is immigration status. So one thing that we silly Americans might not always think about is the immigration status of college students. International students may be even at a greater risk because they're in a new country, they're further away from home, and they may not even know their rights as an international student. Traffickers could potentially use their temporary residency as a way to manipulate them and build fear if the victim were to seek help. Human trafficking may also look very different in their home countries or just not be talked about wherever they reside. So they may know even less about the signs to look for and how to protect themselves in a new environment. Well, and two, I mean, for students who are international students, they're not, um, they don't have a citizenship card, like a resident card. A lot of times they're not allowed to work. So when we think about financial vulnerability as well, that can be a huge thing. Um, You know, if somebody were to approach them about, you know, here's a modeling job and you know, we don't care about, you know, if you have a resident card or a citizen card. Um, they That is one way that they can also be at greater risk. Um, you know, the lack of language barriers. And then too, like Georgia mentioned, do they know their rights as international students in the U.S. Um, and the protections that they are in place for them. Uh, and so those are all um, things to be aware of. And another thing too, a big one is, if something does happen, 
I mean, I know, especially in like today's day and age in the U.S., not to you know go too much into it, there is so much controversy around the police. Well, you know, in other countries as well, sometimes there is even more distrust towards uh, the police. And so if an international student is coming here, they might be coming from a culture where there, like, there is no trust in the police. They can't go to them for things. And so they come here, and if something does happen, they won't tell uh, the school, um, school police officers, um, the officers in the city, they won't report it because of that distrust. And I think something super interesting that happened, uh, Georgia, when we were in school, we actually had a school reach out to us. Uh, they had heard about the work, work we were doing on college campuses and expressed, you know, we are having a huge issue uh, with building trust and rapport with our students on campus, especially the international students, um, because a lot of them came from countries where they don't trust the police and asking, okay, what can we do to help build that rapport? And that was such an interesting thing for them to note and just be very self-aware of and to admit that that was an issue that they were having and wanting to fix it. They're like, we want to help these students. Like how, and they were very aware of the fact that uh, sexual violence on schools are so underreported, especially by their international student population. There just needs to be more education on how to interact with survivors um, of sexual violence, of human trafficking, uh, and how to connect with them and, you know, understanding how to give autonomy back to that person that lost um, a bit of that. Uh, during their abuse. I remember um, when we had met with the representative at that school, it was specifically international students, and they were worried about the Romeo scams. So students were being enticed by people basically like love bombing them and, you know, playing the role of a Romeo and offering them love and companionship and probably like a safe space here in the U.S., but a lot of these were scams and the students were exploited and the like student resource officers or like campus security, I don't know the what they're, they went by, they were really concerned about it because they knew it was happening, but they couldn't do anything about it because the students weren't reporting it themselves. So they were looking for that like olive branch. How do we reach out? How do we form these connections? And that's a big part of how MISCO U was born. We wanted to create an environment on college campuses where not only students can meet to discuss the issues and raise the awareness and just get educated about it in general, but a part of that is connecting with the campus resources. That includes like health staff, that includes campus safety, public safety, any like hospitals in the area, and just kind of learn how the campus reporting process works at your school. If I or one of my friends is in a situation and they are abused or exploited, who am I going to talk to and what are they going to do? That was kind of like almost the birthplace of MISCOU. So if anybody's interested, and that sounds good to you, please shoot us a message. Because, too, then just to build off of, you know, Georgia's announcement of our program, um, 
when we think about who the first people are that somebody tells, it's usually close friends. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it is so important for, you know, everybody to one, be aware of the issue. And then two, to know what to look for on your college campus in terms of, you know, how do you um, submit a report if something happens? You know, how can you disclose it? Can you disclose it privately? You know, do you have to give your name? What is it that it is your campus's regulations on going through this entire process? So you can communicate it to a friend if they come to you, even if you think something like this would never happen to you. It's still relevant to you because you have no idea who you're going to run into, who is going to come and confide in you, um, any kind of abuse. All right. So moving on, when we want to talk about who are the traffickers, especially on college campuses, or who's trafficking college-age people and students? All right. I'm going to run through this list pretty quickly. So we got, you know, I'm sure you've heard the term pimps. You know, you know your boyfriends, your girlfriends, or like a romantic partner um, is somebody who, you know, you can come to trust, and turns out um, they end up exploiting you. Um, employers or other professionals, this can tie into the financial uh, component, false job ads, or taking advantage of somebody's uh, citizenship status, uh, community leaders or people of prominence. I mean, this could be coaches, this could be teachers, uh, family members or friends, uh, peers or other students, uh, and strangers, you know, with no relation to the victim. And then we want to obviously ask the question, how are traffickers reaching these victims? One is in popular meeting places. So this includes like student unions, bars, off-campus parties, on-campus parties, or anywhere where large groups of students are gathering regularly. And then obviously in the age of social media, we have media sites, online dating apps, where traffickers are using the internet to reach victims because they could take advantage of personal information shared online and they exploit potential hardships or insecurities that victims express online and they gain their trust this way. I think too, and then one of the most difficult ones to really like for me to wrap my head around is peer-to-peer -peer recruitment. So campuses have a large number of young people um, in one place, which can create opportunities for traffickers to coerce their victims into recruiting their peers as well. Uh, victims are made to recruit other victims. Um, they're typically called bottoms. And you might be wondering, you know, why in the world would somebody else recruit one of their friends into this life? And there can be several different reasons. One, you know, can depend on how long, how long and how strong the manipulation has occurred. Um, you know, did that, does, you know, has that victim come to believe, you know, that this person really loves me and this is how I'm happy. Um, and so they could be so under that, you know, a person's control. You know, is their family being threatened uh, if they don't do this is another another option. Um, again, that financial component, like, hey, you know, if you come do this job, you're going to make all this money, um, things like that. So there, I mean, there are several different ways that this can happen uh, where peers will go and recruit other college students. Uh, and traffickers like to use this method because a lot of times, you know, oh, you'll trust your your peers, like, oh, they're doing this. Um, it must be okay or it must not be so bad. And we saw that with the Jeffrey Epstein case when we reviewed that a while back. Sometimes the girls were given extra cash to go and recruit their friends to become part of the whole Epstein scandal. 
Another thing we have is deceptive offers of employment and romantic relationships. Like we mentioned before, traffickers can take advantage of economic instability. We're going to keep knocking on that door. Um, they offer them jobs like modeling jobs, acting jobs, and they're almost too good to be true, but it's sometimes it's just hard not to fall for it. Um, entering into romantic relationships or providing emotional support are also common ways that traffickers take control of and manipulate their victims because they do love bonding. They become trauma bonded. We've gone over all this. I'm not going to beat the dead horse. And also taking advantage of financial instability. So traffickers may actually take advantage of students by coercing them to open uh, or into opening lines of credit and then running up their debt. Traffickers may then tell their victims, you know, the only way to pay off this debt is to engage in sexual acts for money. Um, and so that's kind of another take on that financial aspect as well, um, that debt bondage. And let's talk about what are some of the indicators that human trafficking is happening on a campus? So, you know, we look at the behavior um, of a student, you know, does a student show, you know, sudden or dramatic changes in their behavior, for example? Now, oh, if they're like, typically, you know, mild-mannered, um, are they all of a sudden acting out um, or a typical, you know, outgoing person becomes, you know, more disconnected from their peers, deferring to another person to speak for them, uh, especially during interactions with campus authority figures. You know, somebody might be worried about saying something, you know, wrong, quote unquote, uh, to make their trafficker upset. Uh, suddenly, you know, they have more expensive material possessions like purses, clothing, Self, nice cell phone. If they have on-campus apartments, are they staying in their dorm or apartment, or are they often off-campus? Um, are do they appear to be deprived of food, water, sleep, medical care, or any other necessities? Like, how are they physically appearing to you? Do they look okay? Um, do they have any like new or unusual tattoos or scars that? actually might be a branding sign done by a trafficker. Um, and have they suddenly become like quiet and reclusive and avoid contact, avoid eye contact? Does their entire personality basically shift into something else? Uh, again, do they appear to be coached on what they're saying? Do their responses seem to be rehearsed? Um, do they have bruises or other signs of physical trauma? Um, or have a difficult time providing, you know, logical answers to basic questions. So do they seem just flustered? So that was all the behavioral aspects that people can look for. So now we're going to get into the social ones. You know, ask yourself, does this student, does this person have a romantic partner who is noticeably older? Um, have they engaged in unhealthy sexual behavior indicate they might be experiencing abuse from their partner? Um, what about unhealthy coping mechanisms. Are they drinking excessively? Have they started using drugs? Have they started using a new drug? Are they missing class, etc.? Do they seem restricted from contacting family or friends? Um, have a large financial debt and is unable to pay it off? Uh, appears to lack control of their own money? Uh, lack control over personal schedule and or identification or travel documents? Speaking of like international students, if do they have a work permit or tell you they have a work permit, but they're clearly working outside of those permitted hours, 
And even if you work on the campus, is somebody technically still out working at 11 p.m. when the campus kitchen closed at 10 p.m.? Do they live with an employer or have an employer listed as their caregiver or their emergency contact? And do they make references to frequently travel to other cities or towns off campus? Now, if you notice, like, you know, several or any of these signs, there are a few things that it's important to be aware of. Um, when encountering a potential victim, it is important to remember that they may not, you know, be comfortable coming forward um, and working with law enforcement. Uh, they need to feel stable, uh, safe, and secure. Uh, so, again, it's important to note that trafficking victims, they may fear law enforcement. Uh, the idea of reporting what's happening to them might just bring them such excess stress. Um, they may not identify themselves as a victim. Uh, they may not know. A lot of, you know, we talk about human trafficking a lot, and I feel like it's on all these movies and shows, but a lot of people aren't aware of what human trafficking really can look like. And so they don't even know they're being trafficked um, or they don't want to, to view themselves as a victim. And so they won't identify in that way. Uh, they may not tell a complete story or use uh, very rehearsed responses. So it can be very difficult to try and have a conversation and bring any concern that you notice uh, to their attention. Uh, identify with the trafficker or express romantic feelings for them. Um, they might do this, um, again, as a result of, you know, the manipulation that they have been led into believing, uh, and they might fear judgment from those in authority, uh, as well. And so they might, you know, maybe hesitant to come forward and to talk about their situation. So more things we want to keep in mind are the effects of trauma that can be present for a victim. Victims of human trafficking may suffer from trauma from their most recent experience and potential trauma from past experiences. It's severe emotional or mental distress and it's caused by a single event. It can be an intense one-time event where there is serious threat or harm or a series of events that are long-term. So they may witness or experience neglect, abuse, or other forms of violence. So it's really important to understand how trauma can impact brain function and result in behaviors they, that may not seem to match the situation, like telling a fragmented story when recalling a traumatic event. There's a lot of gaps in their story, and it's just not adding up. They may have impaired memory, or they're just unable to recall events in a sequence and provide context. You know, they might also lack emotion, uh, non-responsiveness, or lack of involvement with, you know, like the external world, uh, laughing or joking in what might seem to be, you know, inappropriate times, um, erratic behavior, irritability or outbursts of anger, uh, feelings of detachment or estrangement from others. So, you know, we've kind of gone through a, a list of, you know, different things to look out for, things to be aware of. Um, so now we want to talk about addressing uh, victim needs. It is crucial to understand that these behaviors are indicative of the level of control traffickers exert over victims and that victims need support and understanding in order to help uh, make the case investigation and subsequent prosecution of the perpetrator you know, a success. 
when campus law enforcement or public health officials or just general law enforcement encounter a potential victim of trafficking in the course of their duties, it's crucial that they begin to develop rapport and establish trust. Some of the ways they can do that is by immediately engaging with a victim specialist. That is somebody who can connect the victim to support services, which could include medical attention, emergency shelter, and or legal services if need be. They emphasize that assistance is available regardless of the outcome of the investigation and the prosecution, which is really important in making sure a victim is comfortable and trusting of the people that are around them during the investigative process and the beginning of any type of rehab. Um, it's important to take time to explain who you are, answer any questions that they have, and acknowledge and address their very real fears. You know, also being sensitive to cultural differences and language barriers and using an interpreter uh, when needed. Uh, conducting interviews in a neutral location only after the victim's needs have been met and assessed, um, you know, any urgent needs have been met. And then being patient and giving the victim time to stabilize you know, and begin the recovery process. Um, I feel like, you know, a lot of the common uh, concerns that we see arise uh, are that, you know, when police go to do interviews uh, for an investigation, one of the biggest concerns is that it can come off as very uh, judgy or more so like, you know, when they ask questions like, well, what were you wearing? Um, were you drinking? It can sound like more so as like, oh, are you turning the blame back on me? And that's just not a very welcoming space. And so, so this is something that I um, came to realize when I was doing medical advocacy uh, for a rape crisis center. For police to explain why they're asking those questions. I had never known, I did not ever know this until um, starting volunteering there. Police really ask those questions because to get the prosecution to take the case, they have to provide a certain level of detail and information to actually get them to take the case. If there's not enough detail or information, the likelihood that the case will be taken uh, goes down. And so it becomes super relevant so they can explain like, oh, you know, the perpetrator was doing this with like the victim's clothing. So they're asking what you're wearing so they can use the description of, you know, your clothes with what, how, you know, a perpetrator was interacting with that person um, as well as, you know, the involvement of alcohol all become relevant. The unfortunate thing is the other side will go and use that against, um, could go and use that against um, a victim of assault. Right. But, you know, in terms of, the investigation process and the police interview, taking the time to explain every step of the way and why you're asking certain questions, that the extra step can, I, you know, go a long way. I feel like that can, com can completely change a victim's, um, like, understanding and ability to speak to a law enforcement officer, especially if they say, we're asking you this not to judge you, but because we genuinely need it to try and do our best to help you. Like mm -hmm. that completely changes the narrative. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But, and, and I don't even know that, you know, depending on the level of training that law enforcement has received, you know, always like realize that because again, there is sometimes that inherent bias to judge somebody. And so the, the training is so important. Like I cannot stress that enough. 
Um, and so the organization that I was doing um, the medical advocacy with, they trained the law enforcement in that area that would respond to cases um, on all of these things to help make this, you know, as, as easy as a process or a process that gives as much autonomy back to victims as possible. Um, and that, that just should just be done everywhere. Right. I agree. So the last thing that I want to talk about before we go, I mentioned the documentary, The Hunting Ground, and we've talked about how, you know, 90% of people aren't reporting uh, sexual violence that occurs on campus and that there is a pretty large number of people who are impacted by this issue. And why is that? And we kind of hinted to a little bit when we were talking about fraternities that, you know, colleges are getting these donations uh, from alumni and these organizations are bringing a lot of money to campus. And so there is incentive to keep it there. I want to talk, you know, bring in a few more statistics here just to bring up something um, that is, I think, extremely shocking. So with, so as a part of Title IX, colleges are able to keep uh, cases of um, sexual assault. Um, they can deal with them internally. They don't necessarily... I'm sure there are certain, you know, standards and rules. They don't have to be reported to the police. And so with that, one of the um, kind of consequences, I would say, is that it has allowed colleges to protect themselves uh, from this view that college is unsafe for students. They want students to enroll. They want parents to send their kids to their school so they have that enrollment and are getting that money. And as a part of that, I think something that um, is important to note is that despite these numerous studies that have come out showing that, you know, rape is very common on campuses, 89% of colleges and universities reported zero instances of rape. And I believe this was something that was conducted in 2016, 2017, and these trends continue to exist. Colleges aren't reporting this, uh, wow. and they don't have to. And so when we think about, well, why are people not, why, why are 90% of people not reporting? Well, colleges do, you know, sometimes, I don't want to, you know, generalize it too much, don't do a lot to help students, especially if the perpetrator, um, you know, let's say is a part of athletics. Uh, you know, they're, again, athletics brings a lot of money to the school. Right. And so they need, especially with the good player, they need their players to play. So they might not expel, uh, you know, that player for their, for their actions. And there, there might not be any consequences. And if you watch the documentary, like, you'll just see story after story of this happening where the perpetrator received hardly any, you know, to no consequences because right. they were an athlete. You know, their parents donated a lot of money to the school. Um, so there is such a big, like, financial incentive for colleges to protect their uh their image well that also just before you keep going that remind or that like lit up a light bulb in my head of how do you think victims feel when they are reporting it say they're in the room with somebody on their school campus and they say I'm going to report this, something happened to me or something happened to my friend and I'm reporting it on their behalf. When they say something like, are you sure you want to go through with this? Because 
if we, we can trigger an investigation for you, but it's going to impact the alleged, the accused. It's going to impact their life. They Sometimes I feel like cases get flipped to, well, here he has so much going for him. Like if when you say athletes, he has so much going for him. Are you sure you want to make that accusation against him? Because not only is it going to look bad on him, it's going to look bad on us. It's going to look bad on the athletics department. And we just don't, like, we'll do it. But we're just, we just want to bring up that point. Mm-hmm. To get students to drop cases, there is this huge guilt tra- guilt factor uh, into, you know, oh, do you really want to ruin this person's life? Right. And I feel like that even trickles down to, like, I don't even want to say, like, friends and family, but maybe even when people are just telling their peers, there's probably their close friends or family saying, are you sure it happened? Do you really, like, do you want to go down this path? Because I think people know how ugly it can get because one side is trying to speak their truth, tell a story, get some type of justice for themselves or their friends, and the other side is doing everything they can to defend themselves and defend their future and X, Y, and Z. So I feel like these cases just get so ugly when they are brought public that I understand why a school is going to try to do everything to shove it down and not be basically held accountable, but make the victims feel as if it was their choice to not fully report it. Well, and a part of it too is that, I mean, schools, like some schools will make the reporting process so difficult that students will just stop. It's like, it's too much. Or it's not uh, worth it. Exactly. But the way I look at it is, if I see a school that has reported zero rapes for year after year after year, I know there's no way that that's true. Right. Like, the likelihood is so rare. And so what that tells me is that, you know, there is not a good avenue for students to report things that are happening to them. Um, and that environment is able to exist on that campus without consequences or reparations, you know, to actually reduce the numbers. If a college had, um, if they were reporting it, it would make me more so, yes, I would be concerned seeing a number, you know, higher than 10 versus, you know, zero. But then really what that's telling me too is, okay, there is a reporting avenue uh, for students. So maybe they're getting help. Maybe there are consequences to the perpetrator which I feel like if schools are going to take it more seriously, it will help reduce the actual assaults that are occurring because there are consequences. If people know that they can get away with something, they you know they could keep doing it. Right, it almost we, enables that culture instead of deterring well, it. Exactly, and that's, you know, in some of, you know, different, when people have researched different institutions and looked at, you know, the sexual violence, it's usually, you know, several assaults committed by a select, you know, fewer number of people. Because if you get away with it once, it'll continue to happen. You'll, you know, like, oh, okay, you got away with it. And so I'd almost want to see, like, the actual real numbers. And I feel like schools could benefit themselves if they are worried about, you know, what this might look like if they actually started uh, putting consequences towards assault. Or it's a perpetrator. Right. It's all about perspective and how you want to view it. Mm-hmm. 
All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in today's episode, listening to us talk about, uh, you know, sexual violence on college campuses, the way that students are vulnerable, who might the perpetrators be, um, and just the importance um, uh, and of awareness um, and what to do um, if you notice things on your college campus, the importance of training for law enforcement. Um, and reach out to us on Instagram and let us know, you know, if you're a college student, um, and you have, you know, thoughts on this different perspective um, or experience, let us know, um, have that conversation with us and we'd really appreciate it. Um, and again, like we mentioned earlier, you know, at Moms and Security, we have a chapter organization. So if you want to bring these kinds of conversations to your college campus, reach out to us on Instagram, let us know. We will help walk you through that process. Um, you know, again, thank you all so much for staying connected Make sure to subscribe to our podcast um, wherever you listen, and we will see you in two weeks. Bye, guys. Bye.